Uh, Mark chapter 14. And uh, in many ways, what we're looking at today, I, we're, we're treading on um, very precious ground this afternoon. Uh, we are looking at something of great intimacy and emotion and power. Um, and therefore, we, we desperately need God's help. This is not some intellectual exercise where we just say, oh, let's see if we can understand. This is something where we long that God would help us to see Jesus. That's what we're about. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to read uh, this passage uh, together. Let's pray. Father, please help us. We pray that you would speak to us now by your spirit, through your word. And we would dare to ask that we might see Jesus. Lord, please show us Jesus, we pray, that we might trust him and worship him together. Amen. So let me pick up um, from verse 32. Um, and let me just say something. I, I haven't said this for a while. Um, I have a friend who's a preacher who, when he's preaching, I, mean, I think this is extraordinarily helpful. When he's preaching, he encourages people listening um, not just to listen, uh, but actually to worship as you listen. Um, that as you're hearing stuff, you could sit there and you could be turning that into worship as you listen. That you could be saying in your heart, yeah, yes, thank you. Or, or maybe not even in your heart, maybe even slightly out loud if you want to. Uh, a, a yes, this is true. And, and an engagement at that level. And let me just encourage you to perhaps think about that as, as I read and then as we think about this passage together. But we're going to read from verse 32. We're going to listen in as we watch Jesus in Gethsemane the night before he died. Verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I really have one big thing I want to try and impress upon you this afternoon about this passage. One thing I want to try and show you. And it's going to sound very strange when I say it and, and, and slightly odd. 
but I hope you'll see why it's so important. Here's my big point. This is for real. What Jesus is doing in the Garden of Gethsemane is no act. It is for real. Now, I think this is a big deal, okay? Because I think we can easily slip into thinking that Jesus sort of put on an act, but he didn't really experience suffering like we would. So I guess it's a little bit like when I, when I wrestle my boys, okay? I, I wrestle my boys. And one of the jobs of a dad when they're wrestling their boys is to pretend to be hurt sometimes. Okay, that's, the, you know, your little kid punches you in the arm and your job is not to go, I didn't hurt. Your job is to go, oh, ow, that hurts so much. Oh, you're so strong. But you see, it's actually all a big act, right? It's not true. But you're putting on a show because it kind of helps your son to feel like, oh yeah, this is really, really, look, my dad's, I want to try and show you this afternoon. That's not what's going on here. When Jesus experiences suffering here, it's for real. He really feels it. Jesus is not the man of steel. He's the man of flesh who truly suffers. Now, this is going to take us now. This is going to do a little bit. Okay, this sermon is going to come in two parts, okay? The first part is going to sound pretty technical. And the first part, I'm really going to try and stretch your brains a bit. The second part, we're then going to seek to apply that and stretch our hearts. Okay? So let me just warn you, in this first part, if you think, man, we're getting slightly technical, and you're raising questions that I didn't even realize were questions, I'm going to do that. Um, I'm going to ask you some questions which you may not even ever have considered about Jesus. But we want to understand the person of Christ. It sort of forces us to ask some questions about who Jesus really is and what's really going on. Who is this man in the garden? Uh, When Mark starts his gospel, back at the start, he says he is the Christ, the king, and he's the son of God. Now, what do we mean by these terms? What do Christians mean when they say that Jesus is God and man? How does that work? We used to sing a song. It was a kid's song, which used to help me to understand this, uh, that simply says this, fully God and fully man, that's the truth we must understand. What does that look like? Okay, let me ask you some questions. Jesus is God, right? And he's man, right? Did Jesus have to learn how to talk? Did Jesus have to learn how to walk? I mean, he's God, right? He's the creator God of the universe. Did Jesus get tired? Did God get tired? But the Bible says that God can't get tired. He says he never sleeps. You see the problems? How does it work? Okay, here we get a little bit technical. Let's, let's think about this. I'm going to, it's always dangerous to draw diagrams, and diagrams will not represent this fully, uh, and there are massive flaws in this, but let's just have a little bit of a work at this, okay? Um, Jesus has always had a God nature. He's always been God. He is the eternal 
Son of God, who has always existed in perfect relationship with his Father and with the Spirit. That's the Trinity. Creating the world, sustaining the world, loving each other, working out their purposes and their plans. He's always had a God nature. But when he became a baby, when he became a human, he took to himself a human nature, which he hadn't had before. And so we might say, okay, so, so it works like this. So there's the God nature and there's the human nature. And there's sort of these two people operating, kind of, it's a bit schizophrenic. And so sometimes Jesus is being goddy, you know, like when he stands up in the boat and he goes, quiet, be still to the storm. And sometimes he's being human-y when he gets tired or gets hungry. We can say, oh, that's the man bit. That's the God bit. That is wrong. This, uh, if you want the posh name, because some of you like posh names, this is called Nestorianism. Right? This was put forward by a, a, a teacher called Nestorius, and he was wrong. <laughs> I mean, this was like a long, long time ago. He's not going to come and beat me up. Uh, this was back in the 5th century sort of thing. Um, so that was, that was one... But then someone said, okay, so it's not that. All right, we think it's not that. Okay, so this is what they came up with. They said it's this. Okay, that the God nature and the human nature were sort of fused to make a new nature, a new thing. This is called monophytism. <laughs> they really knew how to name things. And, uh, this, and so they said, okay, so the two natures become completely combined into a new nature. This is wrong. That's not just me saying this is wrong. This caused a major, major discussion and split in the church. And a council was called. Uh, and they came up with a way of summarizing this. I want to show you this. Now, look, I told you, okay, this is getting slightly technical. This is basically what they said. And this diagram is probably wrong as well. But it's the best I could come up with, all right? It's more like this, okay? It's more... That the human nature and the God nature retain, they are still separate natures, but they are combined into the one person. So you have to hold both the oneness and the twoness within Jesus. The human and the divine, the human and the God, but in one person. I, I warned you it's going to get technical. Here we go. I'm going to sh- it's going to get worse now. I'm going to show you the official Chalcedonian definition of the person of Christ. Look, we are getting to Gethsemane, and it's beautiful, okay? And in some ways, it kills me doing this. But I, I, I want us to think a bit, and you'll see why this is important. Have a look at this. I, I show you this because I think it's funny as well as helpful. I mean, it's not funny as in, like, traditionally funny. It's funny in a sort of... I don't know. Uh, this is what they said. They said they, the person of Christ acknowledged in two natures, human and divine, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved and both concurring into one person and one hypostasis, not as though he were parted or divided into two persons, but one and the self-same one and only begotten son. Exactly. (laughs) Basically what this is saying is, don't make either of those mistakes. Okay, so look, 
unconfusedly and unchangeably. Don't confuse them. Don't mix them up. Don't make them into one. Um, but also, indivisibly and inseparably. But also, don't separate them and, and make them two different natures. All right? This is what they're trying to guard against. And so here is this, this picture of the person of Christ within Christ. I'm going to get rid of that because it's probably slightly confusing. Here's this picture of the person of Christ. He has always had a God nature. He takes to himself a human nature. Right, let me tell you a story. Imagine a king. A king in a big castle who rules over a kingdom. And in one corner of his kingdom, there is an area of intense poverty. And the king has never experienced poverty in his life. He's only ever known comfort and wealth. And he wants to learn, he wants to experience that poverty of his people. And so he leaves behind his royal robes and he goes to, the, to that place of poverty. He puts on the, the beggar's clothes and he begins to live a life of poverty. Now he's still the king, but he's become poor. Now here's where it's important. At the point when he starts to get hungry, if he were to just say, well, it's okay, I'll just phone my chef to come and make me something. You see, that's a nonsense. He can't do that. To truly experience the poverty, he has to deny himself the benefits of being the king. He has to make the choice to go without the rights and the benefits that rightly could be his. He says no to that in order to truly learn obedience to poverty. Imagine he starved himself to death in order to experience that poverty. Do you see? Now he's learned. And so the king, the royal status is still possessed, but it's not expressed. He's still the king. Right. If none of that made any sense to you at all, don't panic. We're going to get into the story. Because what I want you to see is the reason this matters is because when Jesus, who is eternally God, when he became man and took to himself a human nature, he lived his life as a man. He did not quit all the time keep resorting to his God nature to say, oh, I'm in a bit of trouble here. I'll just call on my power. Actually, he chose to restrict and limit himself. He was still God. His godness was possessed, but not expressed. And there were moments in his ministry when his godness was on display, when he showed his power. But his normal pattern was to act, to live the human life, to become tired, to become hungry. That's how he lived. And that's what we see in Gethsemane. So here's, here's my first big point. After all of that, okay, hold all that in your heads um, or, or let that drift away and just focus on this. I want you to see now as we get to this passage in Gethsemane, I want, my first big point is that the battle was very real. When Jesus is praying, he really feels it. Right, let's look, let's look at the passage. 
They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them, stay here and keep watch. Jesus experiences an overwhelming sense. It's as if Jesus stands on the brink and he looks over the precipice and he sees the darkness of what lies before him and he shudders with horror at what he sees. Jesus has always known he's going to die throughout Mark. He's been telling us, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. But now, at this point, for the very first time, the true horror of what he will experience hits him and it crashes over him like a wave and it threatens to overwhelm him. And that's real. Because he's a man, he feels it. He's not putting on an act. And he invites Peter, James and John along with him. Peter, James and John, who earlier in Mark, he took up a mountain in order that they might see his glory. He now takes them into a garden that they might see his agony. That's what Jesus is experiencing. The strength of these words is hard for me to communicate to you. The intensity and the pressure, the crushing, overwhelming pressure that Jesus faced. And why? What is it that he sees? What is it that as he stands and looks into the darkness, what is it that he sees? It's summed up in that one little word in his prayer. It's the cup. He sees a cup. That is what terrifies him. You see, reality is that lots of people have faced death. Even in the Bible, you get guys like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who are going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And they seem to face it bravely and with courage. They don't shrink back. They seem to... What's going on here? It's because Jesus sees something far worse. Jesus sees something that no human being has ever really experienced like this. He sees a cup. We have to understand what that cup is. This is the reality of the battle. It's very interesting. Throughout Jesus' life, he's been drinking from a cup. Come on, we know this because we've been talking about this all the way through the surface. Come, come to me and drink, God says. Come, all the thirsty, come and drink. Psalm 23, which Sally quoted later on, says, My cup overflows. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, and my cup overflows. Jesus has experienced the cup of his Father's blessing. He drinks the joyful cup of his Father all the time. He, that's his, been his experience. But now he knows he faces another cup. And I'm going to show you four verses from the Bible. I'm going to put them on the screen. And I want you to try. And This is impossible, but I want you to try and feel the weight of these words. This is what he sees. Lamentations says this, But to you also the cup will be passed. You will be drunk and stripped naked. It's a cup of shame. The cup of being exposed. Look at this from Psalm 75. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it. 
down to its very dregs. It's a cup for the wicked. It's a foaming cup of punishment for the wicked. That's what he sees. Ezekiel 23 says it is the cup of ruin and desolation. And Habakkuk 2 says, you will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. That's what he sees. He knows in just a few hours that cup is going to be passed to him and he is going to drink it. He feels the intensity of that. He shudders with horror and recoils from that prospect. Now, of course, the obvious question is, well, why? Why is he going to drink that cup? And I'll tell you that later. Because I want you to see now, in the midst of that battle, I want you to know, Jesus is facing the heat of battle right there in that moment. And I want, you to, sh- I want to show you now that he fought and he won that battle in the garden for you. He fought for you in the intensity. And let me show you how he fights. Here's my second big point. The battle was fought in prayer. The battle was very real. Secondly, the battle was fought by prayer. So come with me to verse 35. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In the intensity of that moment, Jesus' response is to pray. Not to run, not to hide, not to seek to escape, but to pray. And look at the intimacy with which he prays. He calls God Abba. The, the, the most intimate of Hebrew, ter, uh, of Aramaic terms for dad. Father. And it's just, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Jesus is asking that the cup should be taken away from him. He's asking that he might not have to go to that hour. As the man Christ Jesus, he is recoiling, shuddering at the thought of that suffering. And so he cries to his father, if there's any other way. But then look at these nine words at the end. Nine words that change the world. Yet not what I will but what you are. And Jesus, in that moment, makes this decision. I will submit myself to your will. I will obey. You see, there was something in the human nature. Now listen, this is where it gets mysterious again. We must be careful. There is mystery here. 
But there is something within Jesus, something within Jesus the man, that recoils at the thought of the cross. That would seek to, if there's any other way, a temptation that he might find another way, a temptation to not go to the cross. And that is the battle. And in that moment, here is the question. Will he be obedient to his father? Will he be obedient? And the overwhelming and beautiful and resounding answer of Gethsemane is yes, yes, yes. Here is the man who obeys. The man who obeys. Hebrews 5 puts it like this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. That must be Gethsemane, right? And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Did Jesus learn anything in his life? Yes. Did he learn to walk? Yes. Did he learn to talk? Yes. Did he learn to be a carpenter? Yes. Did he learn obedience to his father? Yes. He learned to obey. As the eternal son of God, he'd always been submitted to his father. He'd always been imperfect. But in becoming a man... In taking human nature, now the very real possibility of, a, of disobedience became possible. And yet, he's the obedient one. In the garden, Jesus learned obedience. Jesus, in the garden, at that moment, said to his father, Yes, father, I will obey you. I will submit myself to your will. It is a beautiful thing. And because Jesus submitted himself and obeyed his Father, he becomes the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus goes to a cross to die in submission to his Father. Now this, this to anyone who says to me, perhaps Jesus is just one way to be saved. Here is why Jesus cannot just be one way. Do you think if there was any other way, any other way for people to be saved, that when Jesus cried out in the garden, Father, if there's any other way, he says it. Father, is there, if there's any other way, please take this cup for me. Do you think the Father goes, well, yeah, I mean, there's like six ways. If there was any other way, the Father would have, saved his son from death. That the reason Jesus went to a cross is because there is no other way. There was no other way. The father, as he looks at his son, weeping and crying out, the father says, son, I love you, but there is no other way. This is the way. This is the way. And the son submits himself. And I want you to see the battle is real. This is for real. The son has to pray. Jesus prays three times. He has to persist in prayer. But this is where the battle is won. This is where he chooses. 
This is where he proves himself the obedient son. And just as Adam, the man, at the very beginning in the garden, failed to obey God, here is Jesus, the man, in a garden, choosing to obey. The hope of the world is in this man, this prayer, this submission. He's the man who chose to obey and to go to a cross. One final thing. The battle was vital. You want to know why Jesus is going to go and drink that cup? Just look what happened in the garden. Look down with me at verse 37. He returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. He came back and found them sleeping. Jesus is going to a cross to die because his disciples will not and cannot obey. Their weakness is why he has to go. We're not supposed to read this and go, oh yeah, we should really try and stay awake and you know, have quiet times where we're trying to keep awake when we're praying. No, this is about the fact we are weak. We can't stay awake. We can't fight and win this battle. It's too strong for us. Sin is too strong. Our desires are too strong. Disobedience is too strong for us. We're too weak. And so Jesus fights our battle in the garden. I deserve to drink the cup of shame. I deserve to drink the cup of wrath. I deserve to drink the cup of God's anger. Because of all the times I have been a disobedient son to my father. But Jesus drank it. There's a... I don't even know if this is a helpful illustration. It probably isn't, but... um, this is, this, is, this, is, I mean, this is big stuff. This is heavy stuff, right? And I don't want to trivialize it in any, in any way, shape, or form. But in the, in the film um, Peter Pan, <laughs> um, there is a scene where Captain Hook puts poison in uh, Peter Pan's drink. And uh, Peter Pan is going to drink it. And Tinkerbell the fairy flies in between. And she drinks the poison. And then she dies. And then they all have to clap and make it come back to life. But don't worry about that. <laughs> now, in a very pathetically small way, I want you to see that's what Jesus does. Here comes the cup of God's wrath. Here comes the cup of God's wrath. And it's for me. It is the poison of God's wrath. It is an overwhelming, horrific ho- horror that should make me shudder when I think of it. And as it comes towards me, Jesus comes in between and he says, I will drink it for you. He drinks the lot. Which leaves me what cup to drink? What cup do I get to drink? I get to drink the overflowing cup of Psalm 23. My cup overflows with joy. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Why? Because my king drank my cup, in, uh, the drank, drank the cup of wrath that I might drink the cup of blessing. So here it is. Here here is Jesus in Gethsemane. Here is Jesus, the man, 
fighting. Fighting to obey. Not drawing on divine strength, not drawing on God power, but as a man, an obedient man. He went to the cross as an obedient man who fights my battles. And so as we read this, as we read this story, the right response, I think, is to say, I'm weak. Jesus, I'm weak. I need you to fight my battle. I need you to give me the power. I need you to carry me. I need you to be the one who lifts me. And as we read those words, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need to feel that. So here's my simple question for you this afternoon as we finish with all this. And our, man, we've done some, there's loads of stuff we've talked about this afternoon. But I think as we look into our own hearts, as we see our own weakness, I can't obey God even for a week. I can't do it. That's why I'm in such big trouble. Jesus obeyed God to the absolute max. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Therefore, he becomes the source of eternal salvation. He becomes the one who drinks in my place. So this afternoon, I I, I simply want to plead with you and urge you to allow Jesus to be your saviour. Allow him to be the one who drinks for you. And perhaps there are things that you carry. Perhaps there is shame that you carry. Perhaps there is guilt that you carry. Jesus says, I drank the cup for you. You have the cup of overflowing joy and blessing. And as we go through life, every day that we might say, Jesus, I am weak, but you're strong. You fight this battle for me. Please, would you give me the power now to live this new life? And as Jesus changes us, actually, he gives us the power to watch and pray. To fight temptation in his power, not ours. You will never have a battle as intense as Jesus had in the garden. But you will face lots of intense battles. This week you will. Perhaps even tonight when you get home. And you're in the house on your own and the internet's there and there's so much opportunity just to indulge your own desires. Jesus fought for you. He fought for you. And he will enable you to fight. You have to trust him. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this eternal son of God who took to himself a human nature and who in his humanity experienced the battle and who fought that battle and won, who chose obedience, who chose the cross because it was the only way that we could be saved. Father, we confess that our spirit's often willing but our flesh is very weak and we ask that we might find Jesus to be our hope our confidence and that in our battle in our struggle in our 
daily wrestle with sin and temptation and desire, that we might look to the one who fought on our behalf and won and find in him the strength to fight. In Jesus' name, amen.